The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we take you back down to Walterboro, South Carolina, as the Murdoch family murder trial continues. Allegations of fraud, drug addiction, and murder surround this prominent low country family as the patriarch, Alec Murdoch, stands trial for the double murder of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul. A case filled with dark secrets and many more coming to light as testimony unfolds. Court TV's Matt Johnson joins me from the field as we dive deeper into the trial America is watching. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for downloading. And we continue with our coverage of the trial that America is watching. Court TV cameras and microphones inside the courtroom in Walterboro, South Carolina. Alec Murdoch was a lawyer. He's no longer a lawyer. He was someone who had power and influence, came from a family that for generations controlled the criminal courts in the low country of South Carolina as the local solicitors uh, deciding who would and who would not be prosecuted in a criminal court. Meanwhile, they also had this incredible civil practice where they're suing companies and corporations uh, for millions of dollars, getting big judgments and settlements um, through the years through the years, for like 100 years, down in, the, down in the low country. And now Alec Murdoch has been accused of murdering two of his own, his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul. It is the biggest case, obviously, in the history of this courthouse, but one of the biggest cases, criminal cases, in the history of South Carolina. It is, it is unreal what is happening, and uh, we are going to cover it for you here in this podcast. We've got Matt Johnson with us, Court TV crime and justice correspondent, who's on the ground down there in the low country. Matt, let's start right there with your take of the scene at the courthouse, the vibe in the courtroom, and, and what you're seeing and feeling down there in the low country talking to the local folks. Yeah, Vinny, of course. Uh, and you've been down here, too, and you witnessed this. So this is a historic historic courthouse i mean it is something out of a movie and then the people that are attending court the court watchers they're out of central casting a lot of bow ties a lot of seersucker suits but the courthouse big white columns on the inside there's six chandeliers it dims as like there's moody skies here in south carolina the low country and there is a big line of people which is growing per day um, as this trial continues um, to get in and just to get a seat and to to witness history in the making and to see someone so prominent that's been a part of their community for so long in this family, this dynasty, um, one family member on trial right now. So, wow, it is just intense today. Let me tell you that. And when you talk about Alec Murdoch, this is a man accused of murdering his wife and his son, but he has one other son and his name is Buster. And he's in the middle of everything in this family dynamic because he is um, the victim's brother and son, and he's the defendant's son. It's, it's a tough place. I've seen many um, children, and he's an adult, but adult children in similar circumstances. But this one even is a little bit more intense because of the nature of this family, their power, their influence and prominence. 
Um, but when Alec was arrested for some financial crimes, he was in jail. And I know Buster spoke to him. Those jailhouse calls are always recorded. I assume they knew it was being recorded. Alec's a lawyer. Buster's a lawyer. Neither one of them necessarily criminal lawyers, but they've got to know that they're being recorded. But I want to play a little bit of that uh, jailhouse call. Did, uh, did Jim tell you they went and took my phone and my iPad? No. Yeah, they went back on me to, you know, either Lynn or Lizzie's. Not, not that it matters. I mean, ain't nothing on it. But it did. Uh, you know, they didn't. So anyway, um, when they sat on here, whoever said it, apparently they went and got a search warrant and took that phone that they gave me in rehab and my iPad. Don't you have to be presented with a search warrant? Buster, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure what the law is on that. But I mean, isn't that a violation of your Fourth Amendment? Uh, you know, I think at some point they got to serve a copy, but maybe maybe they're giving it to Jim and Dick. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Cause it, you know? Well, I think it does matter, man. I don't think it's, I mean, I mean something's got to give. I mean, I understand that you've done illegal, but that doesn't mean you can just, you know, turn a cold shoulder to the laws of the United States. Allegedly done illegal stuff. <laughs> I'm kidding. Wow. And there's, uh, you know, Buster say, hey, you've done some illegal stuff. Alec comes back, his father, allegedly, and they kind of joke about it. And this is before he's charged with murder. I got to keep that uh, clear. Uh, but Matt, so let's talk about Buster, because on the day we're recording this podcast, Buster had taken the stand and testified. Uh, describe for us what you've noticed from Buster through the days you've been down there. And then a little bit of uh, the dynamic of him on the witness stand. Well, Vinny, what I can tell you is that the courtroom is absolutely quiet. And then he gets called to the stand. This is one of those moments that our trial watchers, that we and his family and him, quite frankly, have been waiting for. He gets up the stand. He raises his hand and he starts testifying on behalf of his dad and I have to tell you, this is someone that I've been watching in court each and every day. Court TV has a seat right behind the family. He doesn't show much emotion when there has been other testimony on the stand presented by the state for weeks and weeks, including the testimony about how his mom died, how his brother died, and those horrible, horrible details. Well, today I was expecting a little bit of emotion, and this jury didn't see any from Buster. Um, he has been very stoic through this whole process. There was a break in between um, some of the questioning. He stayed up there by the stand. And I noticed that when he left this stand, it was his aunt, Lynn, and John Marvin, one of his uncles. They reached back and they tapped his shoulder. They also, uh, you know, shook his hand. They, they comforted him. He sat with Brooklyn. He mentioned her a few times on the stand, his girlfriend. And then he left for a moment and came back in. So I don't know if he was emotional outside the presence of the jury, outside of our camera view. But um, I didn't see any on the stand. You know, everyone handles things differently, obviously. I feel so bad for Buster. And, and, you know, people can think what they want about the Murdoch family and other potential allegations. I don't know the facts of those. I just know the facts and circumstances of what's happened here. 
And he's been placed in such a position um, that, I mean, no one should ever be put in where your, your family members, your, your, your brother and your mother have been brutally murdered. Your father's accused of doing it. You don't know where to turn. You know, through the years in the cases I've covered at Court TV, it is so rare, so rare to see um, a child not support the surviving spouse, even if the other spouse is accused of the murder, even if there's DNA, even if it seems overwhelming, even if the children of, of the uh, victim and of the defendant are super smart, super bright. Um, I've seen Harvard doctors not believe the DNA evidence that convicted their father. So it, it can go, it, it's such an emotional place for them to be in, so confusing and something uh, no one should have to go through. Uh, but he may be going through it because of the actions of his own father. The jury will tell us that. But let's listen to a little bit of his testimony here talking about uh, the guns that they had. Because in this case, the murder weapons have never been found, but prosecutors are trying to tell this jury uh, that it's one of the Murdoch's guns that is missing. We had a lot of guns. Do you have shotguns? We did. Shotguns. Do you have 12-gauge shotguns? 12-gauge shotguns, 20-gauge shotguns, 16-gauge shotguns, 28-gauge shotguns. Right. And how many rifles, type rifles, did you have on the property? A lot. They had a lot of guns. And the prosecutors here, Matt, are, are, are saying, listen, there's two guns that are missing. And his brother, Paul, had one gun, lost it, got a replacement gun, and that gun is missing. And it seems that that's the prosecution theory, that that's the murder weapon. Um, but Buster may have busted that a little bit because he's talking about the fact that there was no replacement gun for his brother, Paul. Right. He, you know, I wrote that down in my notebook um, that he never had seen a replacement of the gun that Paul lost. And then we heard testimony that one of the family friends, I think it was, uh, went through the process of getting the replacement gun. But he was also saying that guns would not always find themselves back to the gun room. And that the worst person for that was Paul. And in the Murdoch family, Lynn, the, you know, his uncles, um, you know, this is all Alex brothers and sisters. They all kind of chuckled and shook their head yeah, you know, for they they have these moments of levity where they remember Paul for the way that he was and good or bad. That was just a characteristic of Paul. And this was a hunting property. And at the end of the day here for prosecutors, I mean, they're going to argue that, hey, we don't have the murder weapon because the killer got rid of the murder weapon and they've tried to match the shells that were found on the property from prior shootings, right? Because they have, they shoot on the property. That's what it's for, 1,700 acres. It's a hunting lodge. So there are shells that are found around the property. And they are arguing that the, the marks on some shells that were found at the shooting range on the property by the front door of the lodge house match those of the shells of the bullets that were used to kill um, Maggie Murdoch. So what they're saying is, is that, okay, so it was a gun owned by the Murdochs that was on the Murdoch property and is not any of the guns that are in the racks that they've found. So whether or not there was this second gun, either way, Matt, the, unless the defense has an expert that's going to say that the, the prosecution expert matching up these shells uh, got it wrong, 
What are the odds that someone who finds or steals a weapon from the Murdochs then uses that stolen uh, gun to commit the murder of the Murdochs? That's what that's what the defense is stuck. That's where they're stuck. Right. And, I, and they haven't overcome that just yet. And I think that where they're going, they're going to have a week long for their presentation. I talked to Dick Hartputlian about it. He's expecting a week. And they're going to bring in their own experts and whatnot. But I think that what they're going to allege or they're going to um, put, hopefully put reasonable doubts from their point of view is what they're hoping, is that maybe someone came into the home and, and took the weapon and then obviously left with it after shooting, after the shooting. Wow. So now you've got a breaking and entering plus a double murder. All all the while, Alec Murdoch is there that night, but he doesn't notice any of this happening. This, But I, he's not there the whole night. So we're going to hear right. a lot more about their timeline. And then the other thing that they Wait, did so make the a point. so the murderer shows yeah. up without a murder weapon? Does that, uh, do we think that they're going to allege that the murderer shows up without a murder weapon? I'll just get one out of the, out of the house? Um, That's a crazy. Murderer, a murderer who they're going to allege is very short. Because Alec Murdoch, who they measured during one of the breaks last week, is 6'4", and they are really going to hone in on the fact that he would have been crouching to a position where he couldn't have fired the shot into Paul's head. So we're going to hear about that. I really believe that. Um, I do think that they did the make The only one in that break. house who's that short who was there that night would be one of the dogs. Well, where were they exactly during this show? Yeah, exactly. Ex exactly. Unbelievable. I, 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 we'll see. You know, the defense, you know, if their experts come in, they may be very convincing and 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 maybe they'll get us there. But um, where we are right now, I, I think they've got some work to, to do. They've it just, just takes one. Yeah, they need reasonable does. doubt. And it just takes one for a hung jury. For a hung jury. Right. But a hung jury is a hung jury. You just do it again. You're not off the hook. And defense attorneys always say that they, they just want one. They want a hung jury. It's like they don't want to win. They just want to they just want to not lose. It's amazing. And that, 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 to me, that speaks volumes. That speaks volumes. If you think your guy's innocent, you just want him hung? No, you want to, you got to win the case. You want him exonerated. Um, I'm sorry, I'm on a tangent, Matt. Well, yeah, because remember when he was arraigned, they said that they just want to get on with it. They want a speedy trial because they have to go and find the real killers. They have to do that. Yeah. Interesting. And there was and there was testimony uh, today that uh, from Buster, right, that they sent out a reward. It's like $100,000, him and his dad. Sent out it had an expiration date. I didn't did? quite understand that part. Yeah. <laughs> Find the killers, but but before this date, otherwise it, it doesn't count. Wow. Person or persons responsible leading to an arrest, but you have to do it by a certain amount of time. So that didn't happen. That's interesting. That's very interesting. A reward with an expiration date. All right. Um, another interesting uh, issue that came up uh, with Buster, and this is a big part of the case, and I think perhaps part of the reason all of this may have happened uh, for one reason or another connected to this, which is Alec Murdoch's drug problem. Let's take a listen to what uh, Buster knew about it and what he told the jury about. Buster, were you aware that your dad had a um, opioid addiction? Uh, a little bit. I knew a little bit about the usage of pills. What did you know about it? I knew that I knew that either my brother and mom had found them at some point, and then you know told them like, "Hey, we found these." And he, I want to say the 2018 around Christmas, he went to a, a detox facility after Christmas, and that was my knowledge of it. Thought that 
that handled it and then there were a couple more times after after the fact where they would kind of go into this finding pills all that stuff and then he he did a few he did a few kind of like at home just self-detoxed a couple times and you know thought you know once he did that that you know get off of them but that, that was kind of my general knowledge about it all you, you thought he he had beat it that's right yes sir and when he was confronted with about his pills what was his attitude I, I, I don't know for sure because I wasn't there when a lot of the confrontations happened with with them finding the pills but I mean I've never heard anything just you know apologetic and right you know sorry and would would usually be his kind of regular you know kind of response you know it's fascinating the dynamics of the family uh, buster is not really in and around his brother and his parents i think as much as his brother paul was right it seems like paul maggie and alec were together a little bit more and paul's the younger brother were interacting a little bit more and Buster was a little bit more on the outside kind of growing up and moving on in his life so he had a little bit more of a separate life uh, but what's clear here Matt is that yeah Alec Murdoch uh, did and may still have a drug problem yeah and you know the first time that I had heard that I didn't think that it won any points for the defense but I mean that's just me um, I was kind of looking at the jury's reaction, they were really paying attention to this part. But I, I, they had to address it somehow because this is how the state kind of left their case last week when they rested. They brought in those text messages from May. And again, I'm gonna say May because that's not the month of the murders, but they were um, text messages about um, from Paul, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, that mom found pills and, you know, something about a discussion is going to happen. So the the prosecutors were kind of saying that maybe that was coming to a head, that they were upset, and now you're going to confront a drug dealer, I mean, not a drug dealer, but a drug user, about his using and finding pills. So it was addressed today. I'm not sure if it helped their case. Well, I, I think it's one of those issues that can it's going to be used by both sides because they have to, because now it's a fact. I mean, I was very skeptical going into the trial. I didn't think he necessarily had a drug problem. I thought it was, you know, rich people get in trouble. They go to rehab. Uh, you know, the, we've seen it a million times out in Hollywood. Uh, but that's not the case here. Hey, hey, hey. Now stay out of Hollywood. Well, there. it's true. You know, that's my stomping hey, grounds. I know, but it's true. But here in the low country with uh, Alec Murnock, it's legit. I mean, he had a drug problem and we've heard it from, you know, more than one person. And the, and the question I think for this jury is going to be, um, is it, was it part of the friction in the household between Maggie, Paul and Alec, this confrontation about his drug problem and this drug problem that is turning into financial problems because it's just draining money to feed his addiction. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about that because I think the defense has their own take on that situation involving the roadside shooting, cousin Eddie and a couple of drug dealers known as the Walterboro Cowboys. He had a long-standing oxycontin or opioid addiction issue. Yes, sir. How many years? Uh, 
the best I can remember around 20 years, 18 to 20 years. And so you decided to end your life? That's correct. And tell these sweat agents um, how you went about arranging that. I called Curtis Eddie Smith on the telephone. Okay, now let's stop for a second. Who is Curtis Eddie Smith? Curtis Eddie Smith is the primary person who I purchased pills from for years. And how did he just, I'm assuming he just fired once? Yes, sir. Why weren't you truthful with us when, when, when this initially happened? I don't have a good reason. I was in a bad, bad, bad place. Wow. This, this is so, I've never seen anything like this. That is an interview that Alec Murdoch is doing after the murders of his wife and son. It's like three months later. Um, after he had this roadside shooting where he gets shot in the head, but it's like grazed, he's bleeding, he gets hurt, um, but obviously he's not dead, right? So he originally called it in to 911 as some stranger, you know, was helping him after he had a flat tire, and when he turned his back, he got shot, and then the person drove away. And then in that conversation, which he's calling from rehab in Georgia, He's telling the, the investigators that, no, what really happened was I asked my, the guy who gets me my drugs uh, to shoot me because I was so despondent I wanted to die, that it was really a suicide attempt. But amazingly, in this suicide attempt, um, he doesn't die. He doesn't die. So uh, what a fascinating moment in the trial to hear this. Uh, Matt Johnson, Court TV Crime and Justice Correspondent, is still with us here on the podcast. He is in Walterboro, South Carolina. Um, fascinating stuff because the, the attorneys who are with him when he makes that call from rehab are the attorneys who are in the courtroom. Right. And then I think it was the next day where they were saying, well, it shouldn't have been, they were arguing that it shouldn't have been played in front of the jury because they said that he hadn't given consent and that he was on drugs at the time, even though he was detoxing. So he wasn't within right mind. And it would that was kind of interesting. Um, but ultimately, as you heard there, it was played for this jury. And then we learned a lot of other details about Eddie Smith. Right. Um, you know, they were saying that he was skimming off the top. He was, Alec was paying him to buy drugs between 40 and 60 thousand dollars a week. And um he had some unusual things in his house, too, Vinny, including a drug reference guide that you might see at a doctor's office. So this level of drugs that Alec Murdoch is uh, allegedly purchasing screams at me that it, it, it can't just be for personal use, but that's the way it's playing in the courtroom. I mean, that's a lot of money for a lot of drugs that, you know, you're if you're buying this sort of stuff, these opioids, you're buying them not through a prescription, not through a drugstore. I mean, sooner or later, you would think over the course of 20 years, and especially in the last few years, that maybe someone would slip some fentanyl into some of the, these drugs. It's so dangerous to ingest this much, yet be able to function. He was a functioning attorney. Right. And that's just shocking in itself, like because he says that he's been doing this for 10, 20 years. He doesn't even know how long he's been an addict. And then again, today we were hearing Buster say that he'd been in and out of treatment programs. He would detox at home. They thought that it was under control. And then I, my mind just goes back to last Friday when there's these text messages of, you know, Maggie 
discovering pills, bags of pills, and Paul is warning Alec about it, saying mom's not happy. And then we see the search results on her phone. She's searching different types of pill descriptions. It just really kind of seems like this was something that was becoming a major, major problem or becoming more apparent within the family. So on the other side of the coin here for the defense, one of the reasons um, they may use some of this information is to try to connect it to someone else who would have a reason to go after the Murdoch family. So let's take a listen to this part of the interview. Again, this is Alec Murdoch in rehab with his lawyers talking to the SLED investigator. Let me ask you this. Are you, do you owe money to any drug dealers? Yes, sir. So there's not a threat out there that we need to worry about for Buster? Yes, sir. No, no, sir. Okay, so so the money that you were paying to Curtis to get money from his his dealer or his supplier, you were paid in full in those payments. So there's no outstanding debt that we need to worry about. Yes, sir. And Ryan, that's assuming that Curtis passed all the money along. Well, no, I, I understand. I understand, and and um, you know, we'll. we'll work. Um, so, to the best of your knowledge, you don't owe anybody? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so, so the money that you paid him, you don't remember how much you paid him, but it was for pills, and you're saying that you, you didn't pay him at all for him to shoot you? That's correct. Now, I'm going to be honest, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. I understand. And, and I know that, like, you know, whether, you, whether you, he, you did or you didn't, it really doesn't have that much of a, of a difference, so I'm not going to, you know, but I, I appreciate your, forth, your, your being forthcoming and you're your, your making every attempt to be honest at this point. But so, you know, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So you did not make any financial payment to Curtis to have him shoot you? No, I did not. Okay, but you entered into a, a verbal agreement with him to set up a scheme where he would shoot you. It would be a suicide set up as a robbery homicide. And you doing so was in order for your son to get your life insurance policy. I don't know about a robbery, but everything else is true. Okay. Wow. A little bit to unpack here. Um, wow. So it comes back to Buster again. So this roadside shooting he's claiming is some sort of suicide attempt to get the money to Buster. But he doesn't die. Okay, so much to talk about here because, you know, basically what they're saying is you're going to buy forty dollars to $60,000 worth of pills each week and then we're going to throw in a murder for free. I mean, that makes sense to most people, right? Um, no, not at all, in including this detective with SLED that is like, okay, let me get this straight because this really doesn't make sense and I really need you to pay attention he was going to kill you for free so that it could be a suicide, robbery, homicide for Buster to get a million bucks. 
And he's like, yeah, that, that's it. You know, that that's basically what we were doing. It makes no sense because Curtis Eddie Smith, uh, cousin Eddie, is many of them referred to him as because we do. They're related, right? Well, apparently his mother's maiden name is Murdoch. So there's some relation somewhere down the road, we think. Uh, and that's what his lawyer said. Um, so he's going to murder someone in the middle of the day on the side of the road, a high profile victim who you know the case will be investigated fully. So he's looking at a potential murder rap and he's not even getting paid for it. None of that makes sense. Plus, he's like his best client if he's giving him $50,000, $60,000 a week um, to, to purchase pills. So you know he's going to get some money from it. He's not doing it for free. So he's killing his best client and committing murder for nothing. And we know that there was some sort of a possible struggle, right? Because the way that the gun was fired, it shoots him and grazes his head. And there was questions whether or not he was ever injured in the first place. And they made it very clear that his medical records show that he was bleeding at some point. And then we heard the video about the girl saying, I didn't want to stop. It looked like a setup. But you have this guy that's flailing around with blood on him. You know, it looks really strange. So... I mean, what was really going on there? Was there a struggle over the gun? Was someone going to shoot someone for a different reason? Were there two guns? Like, what was going on? Yeah, I think what makes the most sense is that Alec Murdoch is trying to make himself into a victim again and gets uh, shot in the head but not killed, miraculously survives. But now we know for sure someone is out to eliminate all the Murdochs. And where that finger may be pointed is at the... So-called Walterboro Cowboys, this group of drug dealers. Let's take a listen um, to a little bit of cross-examination that kind of goes in that direction. And you learned through your investigation that Alec was paying up to $50,000 a week to a guy named Curtis Eddie Smith for drugs, right? That's what was told to us, yes. And you learned through this investigation what was told to you, that Eddie was buying these drugs from... Uh, other folks, members of Sand Hill Drug Gang, right? Yes. And the Sand Hill Drug Gang was a precursor to the Cowboys drug ring, right? I'm not familiar with the Cowboys, but that's what I've been told, yes. And you learned that Eddie owed these drug gang members a lot of money for drugs that were sold to Alec, didn't you? I believe the information came in, too, that they, didn't, they weren't worried about what was owed because they knew they were going to get paid. Did you ever conduct a cell phone analysis of these drug gang members to see where they were on the night of June the 7th? I didn't have their phone numbers. Um, in my experience, that they don't keep the same phone numbers. They use what the, what's called burner phones. But we also did an analysis around Moselle trying to encompass anybody else coming in, um, and that information did not pan out. There was only two people identified, and they were emergency first responders. So there it is. Maybe this is where the defense goes. I've heard like guests on my show talk about this as well. Hey, oh, they didn't investigate the the uh, the, the cowboys, the drug dealers. You know, it, it's kind of like in the O.J. Simpson case where it was the Colombian uh, drug lords, right, who were out uh, to commit that double murder. Here it's the uh, local cowboys who were doing it. Um, what are your thoughts here, Matt? Like, was this, do you think this is, was a, an effective part of the defense? And do you think it gives us a prelude to where Dick Harputlian may go in his closing argument? 
I think so. Um, obviously, we haven't seen any evidence that supports it just yet. And they also have the video recording of him saying he didn't know any money. And then you have this part of it. The Cowboys was kind of out of thin air. But I have to tell you that it's a well-known name in the low country here. There were people in the gallery kind of nodding their heads. And afterwards, you know, of course, they didn't want to go on camera for this part. But they were just saying that they they knew of the Cowboys. They were worried about them, that they... They have a presence here. So I think that when you're talking to this jury that is based here in South Carolina in Walterboro, I think that it actually might could possibly create reasonable doubt, you know, because that's that's their, their focus, right? Is these 12 people that are going to be making this decision. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, um, how each particular juror determines what reasonable doubt means to them is a very personal decision because the the definition that they get from the judge is is somewhat vague and imprecise because that's just the nature of it. Um, different jurors see it differently. Uh, the bottom line, though, in reality, there is zero evidence that anyone else was there. Zero evidence. And, and, and what the defense is relying upon is they're saying it's such a sloppy investigation that they missed the evidence that was there. How do, how do you prove something exists because you, someone didn't find it and they didn't do a good enough job finding it? Like to me, it makes no sense that whole theory because I've seen it in every, almost every defense case is every time there's never been a good police investigation, according to every defense attorney in every murder trial I've ever covered. Well, I think that, you know, in this particular case, we're already seeing the groundwork for them doubling down on Alex alibi and where he was. And then also we're hearing that, according to the defense, uh, first responder, I'm mean, not first responders, but law enforcement didn't look to anybody else because we heard from the PIO saying that there was no risk to the public. That was the statement that was released. And then there's going to be a lot of focus on the angle in which Paul was shot and how low to the ground it was. And then you have this defendant who's so tall. So it's a tiny drug dealer. It's a tiny drug dealer that we're looking for. You know, it could be Maybe about... <laughs> maybe a, maybe a baby drug dealer, right? Like a, like a little kid, you know, I, th this is insane. It's such a stretch, but Hey, what do I know? But what there's no know? blood on him, you know, according to some of the reports. I know it's and... always about what evidence doesn't exist, but how about the evidence that does exist? You know, what does exist evidence that he, that there's three people at the scene of the crime just prior to the murder. Two of them are dead. And the third one lied about, being there. Okay. That's what I know. That's an indisputable fact at this point. There's no way he can say he wasn't at the scene of the crime and that he didn't lie about it saying he wasn't there. He was hyped More up on drugs. Once. He was hyped up on drugs, right? That's what right. Which is another reason why you might not be thinking straight and you might murder your son. Or and you your might wife. not remember that you were there at the yeah. dog kennels. <laughs> okay. I got it. That's great. That's good. Maybe he'll use that one. But I don't know. I'm not part of the defense team. I'm just you're just you're just a correspondent on the scene talking to people seeing. in the gallery that have questions. Exactly. Yeah, and that's probably the best people to speak to because they are closest to the people in the jury than any of us because we're all jaded. I am jaded. <laughs> I admit it. No, you're not. 
I'm a former prosecutor. Of course I am. You're not jaded. Um, that's just the way. That's the way I see the world. I, I, yeah. Well, I've seen this. I've seen this. This show before. This defense show. And we'll see if there's anything to it. Like, show me some evidence that someone was actually there. Because by the way, the defense has no burden to prove anything, but they're allowed to. They're allowed to investigate the scene. Their client owned the property. They could bring in their own experts to go in there and go through everything. And it's not like anything stops them from doing it. The investigation doesn't end with one side investigating. They're allowed to investigate. And Alec Murdoch, by the way, has lots of money. So he could hire an investigator to find things if they wanted to. And I know they have no burden to do so, but they but there's no prohibition stopping them from doing it. When we come back, though, let's talk about uh, love and marriage. Um, one of the victims here is Alex's wife. And what exactly was the state of their uh, union, so to speak? We'll talk about that when we return. What's lovey-dovey mean to you? What does it mean to me? When you use the phrase lovey-dovey about Alec and Maggie, what does that mean? It means they loved each other. What, in, in, in your presence, you just, I mean, you described that, them as being lovey-dovey, didn't you? Yes. And, and tell the jury what you meant by that. Oh, every time I always see him, they, you know, they, I've never seen that man even raise his voice at his wife or kids. So I'm so, um, or his wife. I've never seen him even, none of them argue. Oh. But he always, anything she wanted or the boys wanted, he would try to get it. Lovey-dovey. And, and and there's a lot of testimony and evidence in this case saying that Alec Murdoch and, and Maggie seem to have a good relationship. But I've heard all these other little swirling rumors about what was really going on. But, you know, was there tension in the relationship because of the financial uh, situation of the family? Was there tension because of the lawsuit connected to Paul's boating accident. Um, all of this, I think, uh, plays a role, so to speak. Was there tension because of Alex's uh, drug addiction? Uh, Matt Johnson, Court TV crime and justice correspondent, what's your, what's your take on the status of this marriage? I think that we were expecting to hear that there was a troubled marriage because there was some of that reporting, some by a national magazine, and that never came into evidence. And everybody that took the stand was only saying things like lovey-dovey and that they got along and that they were inseparable. Even people that knew them that were in the gallery that I've interviewed during court breaks, they would say, um, you know, like this one woman who was wearing heart glasses on that day. By the way, that that interview happened on Valentine's Day. And um, so she was wearing heart glasses and she was neighbors of the Murdochs. And she said Maggie went everywhere with Alec. They were inseparable for a really long time. So... I mean, I don't know where people were saying that they were troubled, maybe because she was living in Edisto, but she loved the beach and she would come home all the time. And the family said that they would spend time at Edisto. And I think that birthday video that they keep playing is also at Edisto, but a little bit more investigating on that. But um, yeah, this guy really hit a home run, I thought, for defense because yeah. he was really relatable, really loving guy and a great guy. And on this day, oh, before I go, on this day, you know, the, the gallery and also the jurors, they're all wearing red and pink on Valentine's Day. So I think we have a sensitive jury. Very interesting. Ready to celebrate um, Valentine's Day in the love. They love love. Yeah. 
Um, I'm confused by their relationship, but at the end of the day, um, I've been at Court TV so long. I've seen so many spousal murders. Usually, there's usually a an affair. There's usually a fight over money. Um, there's something going on that's very obvious, or one is about to leave the other. I've seen that so many times. Uh, there's no evidence of that, but there's a little bit of evidence that everything wasn't one thousand percent. Perfect. And this testimony came from uh, Marion Proctor, Maggie's sister. I think that's uh, clearly in, in response to uh, the extensive evidence been offered by the defense. You said, has she ever, such as 15 years ago? Well, I think that my follow-up question would be, was that something that uh, remained in Maggie's mind over the years up until... Uh, and she would know that. I think that if I asked her that question, she could express an answer to that. Yes, sir. No. What is the answer to that? It was an affair that happened, or Maggie thought it was an affair that happened many years ago. Um, they were able to resolve the issues, but Maggie still brought it up. As recently as when? A year ago. She did not think anything was going on. She just, it still bothered her. All right. Yes. Uh, during when that event occurred, uh, did she make Alec leave the household for a period of time? She did. Frame when this happened. I mean, I understand. 15 years ago or? It was a very long time ago. I'm not sure. Um, a very long time ago. All right. So at the end of the day, the judge did not allow it. The jury doesn't know about it, but we do. What, what does this tell you about the status of the marriage? Was there, was there a little bit of tension? I mean, her sister's saying, yeah, it still bothered her. As early as a year before Maggie's death, it bothered her. Now, my first thought when we were hearing that was going to, maybe that was the explanation for the Gucci receipt, because we really haven't understood why that was circled. Um, but right now, the defense just keeps showing picture after picture of a happy family. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange dynamic, a strange dynamic. Uh, but we've seen it before. Murderers are capable of killing anyone. They're capable of killing anyone. And we'll see, though, if this prosecution team can convince these jurors that this man, Alec Murdoch, would commit the ultimate betrayal. Matt Johnson doing amazing work down there in the low country. Thank you, uh, sir. I'll, I'll be back down there. So, so make sure... Make sure everyone knows. Make sure my table at Fat Jack's is still there when I get there. It will. It's going to be ready. If right now, it's a celebrity table, they tell me. <laughs> all right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Um, all right, folks. Uh, our coverage of this will continue on Court TV. Obviously, you can watch the coverage uh, with our cameras, our microphones inside the courtroom every day. Uh, I wrap everything up and give you the big moments, incredible analysis um, every night from 8 to 10 on Court TV. Check the show notes for links to uh, our coverage. And uh, thank you so much for watching. I'm Vinny Politan. This is the Court TV podcast. Have a great week. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids.